Good afternoon, everyone. Let's uh, stand together, if you can, for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 7, for our reading today, John 7, verse 1 through 24. John 7, 1 through 24. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because, of the, because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you. But it does hate me because I testify about it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to the festival yet because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of discussion about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him because they feared the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple complex and began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, how does he know the scriptures since he hasn't been trained Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will understand whether the teaching is from God or if I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you want to kill me? You have a demon, the crowd responded. Who wants to kill you? I did one work, and you're all amazed, Jesus answered. Consider this. Moses has given you circumcision, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me? Because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather judge according to righteous judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are back in John's Gospel today as we continue our series in John. And we have reached a point in the narrative after the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, Jesus walking on the water. And uh, many of the disciples deserting Jesus over his teaching about himself, where the issue of Christ's identity comes to the fore again in this uh, discourse. And in some respects, we have the culmination now of a crisis And in order to uh, fully understand what's happening, you have to think back to John chapter 5, 
where Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, and he does it on the Sabbath, and great controversy erupts over this. Uh, The crisis, of course, is not really about the Sabbath. The essence of the crisis, the essence of the problem, is the confrontation between light and darkness, between evil deeds and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the occasion of this discourse, which we're only dealing with half of it today, the second half will be next week when Jesus picks up the theme of living water, but it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, or the in-gathering, or the Feast of Booths, which uh, actually drew large crowds from uh, the whole region and the diaspora of the Jews. And uh, it's important to remember, especially for some of you younger ones, that the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was basically like a vacation for the Jews. It was, it was a holiday, a holy day. That's where we get the word holiday from, by the way. If you're going on your holidays, they're holy days. You're having a rest uh, and celebration for a particular reason. And this would have been particularly fun for families because what the Jews actually did is they would go up to the feast uh, together as a family and then they would make booths. Literally, they'd make tents of branches and things and live in them a short while so that they could reenact. It was like camping. No, they were reenacting the... Uh, experience of their fathers in the wilderness after the exodus out of Egypt. And you have to remember that the Hebrews, when, although they were in servitude in Egypt, Egypt was a high civilization. It was a sophisticated civilization. They were comfortable there. That's why they're always grumbling about wanting to go back to Egypt, because now they're in the wilderness in tents. So this is what the, the festival of booths uh, celebrated. It's interesting, isn't it? We still do this. What is it that possesses us to, uh, for a few weeks of the year, or many of us anyway, uh, get some canvas and head out into Algonquin Park or whatever, or get a trailer and live in a very primitive way, relatively speaking, unless you're one of these glampers who has one of these vans that, you know, there's showers and cooking facilities and everything else. But we still do it. Well, this is, what the, this is what the Jews were doing. And so Jesus' family was also going up. And what the, the, the feast celebrated was the ending of the harvest as well, the, the, the completion of harvest. And it was thought of as a foretaste of the Messianic age, the kingdom of God. Uh, next week, we're going to see how the, 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 the ceremony which focused on water that was part of the festival Water was drawn from the pool of Siloam. It was brought to the temple in a great procession. The crowd would sing with, from Isaiah, with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And Jesus picks up on that aspect of the festival in the next part of the discourse. But what happens during this feast, what would be ordinarily this time of celebration, is the murderous intent of the civil authorities is brought to light. And it was hidden behind their apparent zeal for righteousness, their apparent religious zeal, uh, their what we would call a Pharisaic attitude 
pretending to be upholders of the law, but really a plot to kill Jesus is exposed. And this is the kind of crisis that we meet wherever light confronts darkness. When light confronts darkness, uh, crisis always emerges. So I want to look at the passage just, just in two heads today, the conflict and the judgment. And what I've called my sermon today, truth and judgment. So let's look at the first few verses. In the first few verses, we notice that the family of Jesus is not without problems. So if you've got problems in your family, you've got challenges in your family, difficult people within your family, well, Jesus had the same. So he's been tested in all points just as we are. He wasn't born into a perfect family, and the Scripture makes plain that actually at this point, his brothers didn't believe in him. It's remarkable, of course, that later on, not only do they they believe in him, but one of his brothers, James, becomes head of the church in Jerusalem. That's quite something, that if you're claiming to be the son of God and sinless, that one of your brothers actually believes in you and becomes one of the leaders of the church. Can you imagine one of your siblings believing that about you? But there were problems in Jesus' family, and despite the fact that the authorities were seeking the life of the Lord, his brothers urged him to go up to the feast, show yourself to the world in some sort of spectacular fashion. Now, why might Jesus' brothers have had this kind of posture to him? Well, think about it, kids. Um, There would have been discipline in Jesus' house. But if you've got no sin and you don't do anything wrong, but your parents are sinners, not only might there be tension between you and your parents, uh, because they must have found that incredibly difficult. How do you how do you raise a human being who fulfills God's law perfectly? Not only that, when Jesus' brothers and sisters were getting spanked or told off, Jesus was never getting it. A bit like my younger brother. Well, I was being spanked and told off. Me and my older brother, Ben, we were always getting that cane, and my younger brothers were always getting away with it. That's just the way it goes. Of course, you're not allowed to do that now, but that's the way it was in my house. And imagine what it was like for, for, for Jesus' brothers. They would have seen this and thought, that's not fair. We're always getting the discipline and Jesus never gets it. He's never told to sit on the naughty step. He never gets uh, his privileges taken away. So, yeah, so, of course, they're men now. They've grown up. They're young men. But it still would have been difficult for them. They were trying to understand who their brother was, just as, G- just as Mary, the mother of Jesus, was wrestling with the identity of the Lord. She knew that he was sent from God. She, after, after all, knew of the virgin birth, and she treasured all kinds of things in her heart, but she didn't fully understand the Lord's mission at this point. But the brothers say, go up, show yourself in spectacular fashion. If you want to, uh, I mean, what's your mission and ministry about? Why are you staying in hiding? If you are, you say you are, go up there. Do something. Show yourself to them. Now, this kind of a mentality is an interesting one. It's still with us. 
the, his brothers were, were what we might call evidentialists. They were evidentialists. What does that mean? Well, it means that people who think that if we just give people enough evidence, if you give people enough arguments, if you do enough reasoning with them, then they will believe and submit to God. And this, of course, is a failure to recognize the power of sin and the depravity of human beings. Many people today think that, you know, if we could only, uh, in church and with our message, use the right technologies, use the right medium, if we would just uh, employ certain entertaining novelties to attract people, if we would just be a bit more seeker-sensitive and a bit less judgmental, and maybe not say the tough stuff, then people would be drawn to us. If we'd just be a bit more compliant with the authorities, everybody would love us. And they'd love God. Well, this is a myth. You know, I've been in the work of Christian apologetics because it's a very important calling for 25 years now. And my experience has been over those many years that just giving people evidences and arguments, even convincing ones, doesn't win people to the Lord in and of itself. In fact, when you look at a bit later in John's Gospel, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's at that moment that the plot to kill Jesus takes on a very concrete form, and they are then determined to kill him after they've witnessed the resurrection of a man who's been in the grave for three days. When Pharaoh experiences all of those plagues coming upon Egypt, not only is his heart hardened, Scripture says, but even when he does finally agree to let the Hebrews go, he chases them out into the wilderness, and God has to bury him in the Red Sea. You see, God working in dramatic ways, even in speaking and in his judgments in history, does not necessarily draw people to him. When he healed the ten lepers, only one came back to acknowledge it. But this false view is found in much of the modern church. They think that there's a technique that we're missing. And if we just adapt and accommodate our message some more, then people will be drawn to And the, actually, the opposite is the case. You know, if you look back at the 19th century and you look at theological liberalism, uh, the late 19th and early 20th century, all it did as it invaded the churches was take people's faith away and empty the church. And the mainline churches were decimated by theological liberalism. The motive was, well, if we just make the faith more palatable to people, they'll be drawn to it. But they're not. Because the issue is not a problem of evidence. The issue is sin and rebellion against God. Our culture has largely declared that it wants nothing to do with the gospel. 
Christ and his church today are deemed non-essential. And as we heard in the pastoral prayer, we're under God's judgment for it. And you would think in a time like this, wouldn't you, where people are losing their jobs by the thousands, their businesses, their livelihoods, their health, their civil liberties, that they might think, maybe we ought to turn to God. But that's not the way it works. His brothers practically order him to go up to the feast, assuming that the authorities would give him a fair fair hearing. But Jesus' reply is very telling. He says, well, the time's in my father's hands. My, My time is not here yet. Now, that's reminiscent of John 10, 18, because Jesus knew that there was a already a plot to destroy him, to kill him. But Jesus is not anybody's victim. Sometimes we try and paint again in the modern world Jesus as a, a victim, a bit like a sort of first century Gandhi. He's just this heroic martyr. But actually Jesus says, I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus was not victimized. He was persecuted, sure. But he said to his own disciples, I could call 12 legions of angels to deliver me from this if I wanted to. I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take it up again. So he said, my time's not come yet. There's a very different perspective on time in the Bible. Time in the Bible is about God's plan, his teleology, his purpose, the purpose to which all of time is moving is in terms of the kingdom of God. God does things at his appointed time. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And the time that was being inaugurated through the ministry of Christ was that of the reign of God, the kingdom of God. That's what the Gospels are about. And that's a time filled with total meaning and purpose. Sometimes we struggle with God's time, don't we, a little bit? Because we like to do things in our time, and we think God ought to speed things up a bit. Or in some instances, slow slow things down a bit. Or do things in our way and at our moment. And this is what these brothers thought. Well, come on, get on with it. But God has his own perfect timing for everything, and that means we need patience and faithfulness and diligence in the different aspects of our lives as we await God's appointed time. Jesus would go to the feast in his father's timing and in in his way, not because his brothers were jeering at him and mocking him. It's interesting that he says... uh, he says to them, your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. The, Jesus was saying to his own brothers, the, the world 
the spirit of the world, the mindset of the world doesn't despise you, it doesn't hate you, because at the moment you're still part of it. You're still part of it. Because, of course, later on he says to his disciples, it's, the world's hated me, it's going to hate you as well. But at this point, because they're unbelieving, they don't attract the hatred of the world. Jesus' Jesus' failure to fit in with the rest of the world was not due to a bad public relations arm of his ministry. It's not that he uh, had failed to be sensitive or to use the right media, that he didn't have the right PR person. I once had a, a philanthropist that sit down with me uh, who was considering uh, funding my ministry, or at least partially funding it. He never did. Um, he, we sat down and he said, you know, Joe, you know, I like a lot of what you've got to say, but you have a, a PR problem. Really? Well, so did Jesus. I'm happy to have the same PR problem that he had. You see, the problem was of a radical religious nature. Why does the world hate Christ and progressively the faithful Christian? Because Christ calls attention to the evil nature of a fallen world. That's what attracts the resentment and the hatred. It's not something else. It's not some superficial thing. I mean, look at how eccentric you can be in the world today and actually get a great deal of attention and respect. You can be absolutely cuckoo, and people love you for it. But you dare not be faithful to Christ, the public space. Oh, that will attract the ire of the world. You see, the basic difference is a religious, a moral difference. That's what Jesus is saying. This fact, the world, this this basic difference, this antithesis between the righteousness of Christ and the evil of the world is the antithesis that the world hates any attention being drawn to. Even our worship, you see today, calls attention to the faithlessness of the world. It angers the world because the the world is occupied with its sin and death. And it's lawlessness. And so, to worship God right now, to come into the church, well, that's offensive. You're a hater. You don't care about people's lives. Heard any of that? We want a moral equivalence, you see, in everything. We want a religious, egalitarian relativism that doesn't ruffle any feathers. We don't want any antithesis being drawn between Christ and his claims and the world and its way. That's offensive. The commentator John Marsh writes of this passage, verse 7, he says, in terms of what Jesus is saying, this is more than to acknowledge that Jesus is a moral critic of the world. It's not just that he's a social commentator. It is a claim 
like that made in John 3.18, that by his actual presence, the world is being judged, judged by its reaction to him, end quote. See, it's not just that there's some insightful social criticism that Jesus is doing that offends people. It's the fact that his presence in the world is in itself a form of judgment that the world is reacting to because all of human life, every aspect of human life, in fact, actually, every aspect of creation is a response to the word of God. The sun coming up this morning was creation's response to the powerful word of God that holds all things together. And the way we live is our response to the word of God. It's our reaction to the word of God. And it's either going to be a faithful reaction or a rebellious reaction. Obedience, disobedience. All human life is a response to the Word of God. And you see, that's why even at times the presence of a Christian causes offense. Your identification and association with Christ is what causes offense. And that's what Jesus said it would do. Sometimes I think we think that it's, it uh, must be something we're saying, something we're, 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 the manner in which we're doing something, but it isn't. I remember sitting down with a young man on one occasion here in Canada in a cafe, and uh, he said to me, you know, I believe pretty much everything you're saying. I mean, I can't argue with it, but I don't want to be monogamous. I hadn't spoken about monogamy, sexuality, or anything. I'd just been speaking about the identity of Jesus, but he recognized immediately what the implications might be for his life. You see, increasingly, hatred of Christ appears in John's gospel right here in Jerusalem because his life is an indictment of a fallen world and a declaration of its need for salvation, and that's offensive. At least this form of salvation is offensive because it requires repentance. It requires acknowledgement of sin. Now, other forms of salvation are offered today, of course. Salvation is from carbon dioxide or from a virus. Those forms of salvation are fine. But not salvation from sin and death because of the wickedness and evil of our own hearts and our rebellion against God. So that's the conflict. That's, the, that's why there is this hostility that comes up against the Lord Jesus. So let's think about the second part, judgment, righteous judgment. As you look in verse 15, the Jews were amazed at Jesus' teaching. How does he know the Scriptures since he hasn't been trained? Now, there's all kinds of discussion going on about Jesus, just as that discussion goes on today. It's right here in the text. Who is he? Oh, he's a good, some people say he's a good man. No, he's a deceiver. Those same conversations are going on all of the time. Notice that they didn't want to say anything about it publicly. That's often the case today too. People are happy to have the private conversation. Not sure whether they should say anything publicly. 
all kinds of opinions about Jesus. And they're amazed at his teaching as they listen to him because, part of the reason anyway, is because he's not been schooled or accredited by the accepted authorities. Imagine that. You haven't been to U of T? How can you talk about public health? You haven't been to one of our best universities? What do you know about life? Truth. The potential accusation, of course, in this context, was that Jesus was just propagating his own ideas like any other traveling rabbi of the age, which was very common. And Jesus rejects this view emphatically and points out that his doctrine represents the one who sent him, the Father. Now, that's critical. Look at verse 17. If anyone wants to do his will, he will understand whether the teaching is from God or if I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks for himself seeks only his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, this is a fascinating statement. Jesus says, to truly know God's truth, you must be ready to do his will. You must be ready to be obedient. That is to say that there is a moral, there is a religious foundation to true knowledge. You can know things, you can know stuff, you can know bits and pieces of truth. But if you go wrong at the foundation, religiously, then all of that knowledge will be finally, ultimately misdirected, and at some point, fundamentally misunderstood. If anyone wants to do God's will in his heart, if he really wants to obey God, he will come to know whether the teaching is true. There's a, in other words, here that Jesus is teaching a unity of life, of will, and of knowledge, that they're integral, they're related to one another. You can't just separate them out. Knowledge is not simply an intellectual exercise in the Christian view of knowledge. Now, this is actually a radical difference. This is a radical departure from the Western tradition. From the Western idea of knowledge, which goes all the way back to Plato, the famous illustration, especially for you young ones, that Plato gave of a cave. He was speaking about politics and justice, and he pictured these people in a cave who didn't, hadn't seen or known anything else, and they're looking at the cave wall, and all there is in the cave is a fire behind them that cast their shadow on a wall. And he said, that's what most people, that's what their knowledge is like. It's just like a shadow on a wall. And in his illustration, he takes them outside, and their eyes don't like the sun. And then he takes objects, first lets them look at their reflection in the water, then to look at the object itself, and then finally to turn and look at the sun itself. And for the Western philosophical tradition, that sun is man's reason. He, par- he participates in divine reason. So the, the real world as you and I know it is only a shadow and appearance, but if you can just contemplate 
the forms, the ideas. That's the route to knowledge. Jesus says, rubbish. Rubbish. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't study Plato at Westminster Classical, but it means you have to put Plato in his place. And Augustine wasn't afraid to put Plato in his place compared to Christ. It seems to put the cart before the horse, doesn't it? Well, if you love God, if you believe, then you'll know whether it's true or not. This is a very different way of approaching knowledge. Listen to what the the English um, missiologist Leslie Newbegin said. I know this is a slightly dense moment in my sermon. Just listen closely for a few more minutes. Leslie Newbegin, the missiologist, he's dead now. Wonderful commentary on John's gospel. He said this about what Jesus is saying here. How is this to be known, he asks. It cannot be proved from some other source of authority... There is no bar of judgment before which God can be summoned. Only he who does God's will can know whether the teaching is from God. And what does it mean to do God's will? We have already been told in John 6, 29, it is to believe in him whom he has sent. It is a call to total commitment in obedient and loving faith. There is no other way by which God's revelation of himself can be received. Any attempt to validate the claim by reference to some generally accepted criteria is to foreclose the possibility of revelation and return to the world. In other words, to say you'll only accept it based on some other external standard that you have set up rather than the basis on which God has revealed himself. I go on. There is no way of receiving God's revelation of himself except one which involves the abandonment of every intellectual and spiritual security. There is required a simplicity which must appear to the philosophers of religion at best naive and at worst arbitrary. Those who do not accept and obey the calling of God who do his will, sorry, those who do accept and obey the calling of God who do his will know that they are in touch with the truth, end quote. And that's what it feels like to be a Christian, is when you finally surrender yourself, your heart, your mind to the Lord Jesus Christ, you suddenly discover what it means to be in touch with the truth. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And you shall know the truth, Jesus says, which is himself, and the truth shall make you free. This is echoes what uh, St. Augustine said, I believe in order that I may understand. I believe in order that I may understand. There is no neutral basis upon which we can win people to Christ. People have to be ready to submit themselves to his word. So Jesus rejects here this notion of man's independent and autonomous route to God. It follows then that he indicts all philosophical approaches to reality that begin with human beings and their judgments and their experience or reasoning as the final standard of truth. 
In the last verses then, Jesus begins to unmask the hypocrisy of the authorities who sought his life and their failure to understand the intent of the law of God. Even though they profess to be followers of the law, he says, you all violate it. So you say that while you follow Moses, yet you're trying to kill me and you're all violators of the law. You're lawbreakers and yet you want to put me to death as a lawbreaker. Isn't it interesting how today we are in a culture of lawlessness that's been repealing biblical law for 60 years now? And we have Bill C-6, transgender bill, that's going to criminalize parents, pastors, counselors, therapists, anyone who tries to sincerely guide a young person who's struggling with unwanted same-sex desire or gender dysphoria. If you guide them in terms of the normative standard of God's word, of marriage, of male and female, that's a criminal offense if this bill passes. You could be sent to prison for up to five years for a pastor to faithfully counsel somebody to obey God's law. So you're all this violation of God's law, yet we're told, Christ is told, because we're his representatives, you're the lawless one. And we're going to kill your view of reality. We're going to kill creation. We're going to remake it after our own idea. Bill C-7, the expansion of medical assistance in dying, so-called, a euphemism for euthanasia. You know, more people were killed by euthanasia in Canada than COVID in 2020. Did you know that? We want to extend this now to people who've got, who are sad, who are depressed. Well, Jesus exposes their hatred and their lawless plot to kill him. And his argument in verse 21 refers back to the previous sign I mentioned to you in John 5. Because he worked a miracle in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda. And healed the lame man, which we dealt with previously. And he did it on the Sabbath. And as a result, he was accused of being a lawbreaker, deserving of death. Because he healed somebody. And so Jesus points out that they allow the covenantal practice of circumcision, which comes, he says, from the fathers, from the patriarchs, to take precedence over Sabbath regulation of Moses in order to circumcise. People can be circumcised on the Sabbath. He says, you do this, that's not considered a Sabbath violation. God is bringing infants to birth into the world every day, and you want to circumcise them on the eighth day. And by the way, he didn't do it before the eighth day because we now know that the coagulation of the blood in an infant doesn't happen till after the eighth day. So they would have bled out if you did it before then. God is bringing new life into the world. The sign of the covenant is given to people on the Sabbath. And yet this sign of the covenant 
healing and restoration and wholeness is condemned. It's illegal. It's literally what they said. How interesting. Our meeting today is illegal. Of course, not according to God's law and not even according to our charter, but according to the regulations of bureaucrats. It's okay to be in Costco. It's fine to be in Walmart. You go worship at Canadian Tire and the liquor store. Oh, but don't go to church, you hater of humanity. You see, this is the essence of Pharisaism. And if ever there was a... Which is basically self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And if ever there was a depiction of self-righteousness in Western culture, it's been the last 12 months of people straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Legalism replaces the spirit of the law, the intent of the law, the religious meaning of the law. The letter kills, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.6, but the spirit gives life. And so Jesus commands in the light of this, he says... You have no idea how to judge what is right. You see, this is, a, this is a life-giving thing, to come together to worship God, to sing His praise, to pray, to hear His Word, to come around His table, the covenant meal. That's a life-giving thing. But our culture's preoccupied with death. It doesn't know how to judge anymore. Just like the Pharisees, just like the people there, Jesus said, you don't know how to judge at all. You don't know the measure of true judgment. We're in a country now where we've been emptying the prisons of criminals because we think they might get a virus and we're throwing pastors into them. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. That's how Jesus ends here. Judge righteous judgment. As one theologian put it, too many churchmen are guilty of the same Phariseeism. To illustrate Matthew 7 one through two, is commonly used with Pharisaic intent. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. It is a common interpretation within and without the church that this text forbids all judgment, whereas in fact, it tells us that if we judge with false, non-biblical measures or standards, we shall be similarly judged. What is required of us, as our text tells us, is to judge righteous judgment with God's law word as our measure of justice. And that's why we can't judge in our own age properly. We're Pharisees. We're a culture of Pharisees with our own self-righteous standards. What, what, we've got new definitions of sin. 
definitions of crime, of evil. We've put light for dark and dark for light. Jesus showed that his authority to judge came from his Father, and his judgment was righteous. It's a hard thing to live in a culture where our legal system has degenerated into Phariseeism, relying on technicalities and popular opinion and procedure, not on justice. But we have to be reminded here that in judging our own lives, when we assess a circumstance with others, or we look at our own culture, it has to be in terms of the Word of God. Otherwise, we're no better than the Pharisees who were trying to kill Jesus. We're just setting up our own standard and saying people have to meet my ideas. Truth and judgment are always in terms of Christ. In the end, what really comes home to us in this passage is the presence of the revelation of God in the flesh in a particular human being in Jesus Christ is what creates the crisis. It's the revelation of God in a particular human being. It's, it's there with his brothers at the beginning of the chapter. It's there at the end, there in verse 24. In the, in the, the last verses, in the reaction to the Lord Jesus of the Pharisees trying to kill him, what creates the crisis is the claim, is the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the man. It's what creates the crisis. The world's wisdom cannot accept this. Newbegin put it very well when he said, an idea of God creates no crisis. An idea of the divine creates no crisis. It is part of my mental furniture and therefore part of the world in which the self is sovereign. Have you noticed how any religious idea today is just great? Buddhist, Hindu, Islamic, wonderful, wonderful. Jedi warrior, rank pagan, it doesn't matter, wonderful stuff. But not the revelation of the man, Jesus Christ, who reveals God in the covenant, in the flesh, which is what this table is a picture of as we come now to the Lord's table. Because as we associate with the Christ, that revelation in the flesh, that's what draws the opposition of the world to us. It's not because we're perfect. We're all sinners. We have to come to this table because we are sinners. It's our identification with Christ that causes us the problem. So there is a very sure way that you can get away from that if you want. Don't identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they won't hate you. You can go up to the festival. But if you identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, part of the cross that we are called to carry as believers by the Lord himself to take up our cross is that if the world hated me, Jesus said, it's going to hate you as well. If you want to be liked by the world, by the spirit that's in the world, don't identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're ready to stand for righteousness and truth and justice 
and to stand with the Lord and his, the direction of all history in terms of the kingdom of God, then let's come to the Lord's table now, which is the manifestation of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh is pictured for us here at the table.